As you know, I'm here because I've been traveling to Israel uh, twice a year, at studying at the Shalom Hartman Institute. Um, and so it's not lost on me that that's a lot of flying. And so I would like us um, to dedicate our learning to those who perished, uh, both in the plane that was shot down and uh, as well as to the helicopter that crashed. I'm just so aware of every time we get in the car, I know it's much more likely. But it's also it's a massive loss of life all at one time. So, um, so I'd like to dedicate our studies to their memories. Uh, so I thought I would tonight orient you a little bit to what I'm doing at Hartman, because everybody's like, what are you studying? And I'm like, right. Um, so people are like, what is Hartman? So what I've given you uh, already in your hand um, is the mission statement uh, the black and white piece of paper um, is like the mission of the Shalom Hartman Institute. Do you all have handouts back there? Okay, they're coming. Um, so it's kind of it's the mission of the Shalom Hartman Institute. On the back is the history of the Shalom Hartman Institute, which was founded by Rabbi Professor David Hartman, who was. Uh, uh, actually in Montreal. He left his congregation in Montreal to found uh, to make Aliyah to Israel and there founded the Shalom Hartman uh, Institute. Uh, his son, Daniel Hartman, now runs uh, the Institute. And so it's, you know, very much a, you know, you get the continuity from the founder and the person who built it when, you know, their child who was on the bima with uh, David of blessed memory from the age of three. So one of the stories that tells me a lot about who Doniel Hartman is, who I have the good fortune to study with, uh, and I'll tell you a little bit about that study, um, is he said his father put him on the bima in one of the big chairs next to him once he was three. That was to be his place every Shabbos. And he said, you're gonna be up here every Shabbos sitting next to me because you see that? And he points to all the Jews. He says, they're your responsibility. That's your responsibility. <laughs> Need I say a lot more about like, <laughs> right? Um, so, uh, right, I know, right? So, uh, so, so Doniel literally from the time, you know, he, he was tiny, was around his father's teaching and was around the philosophy of his father, which of course evolved over time as well. What David Hartman, um, a blessed memory, cared a lot about was Jewish pluralism. So this is, a, this is a word he uses a lot, and we spend a lot of time at Hartman unpacking terms like pluralism, which we're going to do a little bit tonight. So people who have been part of Hartman um, always say that, you know, so have you gotten the Hartman Torah yet? Like there's, there's Torah that's Hartman Torah. And so one of the things that's Hartman Torah is the idea of pluralism, but really understanding what that means understanding the benefits of approaching things from a pluralistic point of view and the absolutely crazy-making challenges of, of trying to, to be in a pluralistic uh, environment of any kind as human beings. Um, and actually, uh, the way Doniel Hartman teaches this stuff is that we, don't, we really don't do pluralism very often. And um, we'll talk a little bit more about that time. Mostly what we do is tolerance. Um, and we'll, we'll talk more about the differences between those. Um, so, so what am I doing? So there's a couple of, you know, it's alphabet soup whenever you get immersed in a culture and spend a lot of time in it. Um, 
and so I just want to I just want to unpack some alphabet soup because it's just easier to throw them around than it is to use the full terminology. So I'm in. You can't read that back there, can you? No. All right. So I'm part of what I was invited to do. What is called RLI. RLI is the Rabbinic Leadership Initiative. This brings rabbis from all denominations from all over North America to learn together in a pluralistic environment. Uh, and it includes this time in this cohort for the first time, three rabbis who were uh, ordained by the new Israeli rabbanut. They are now coming through part of Hartman is this new um, program for creating Israeli rabbis that is not part of the chief rabbinate. So rabbis from all kinds of backgrounds serving in all kinds of capacities who do not have to get uh, ordained through the, uh, the chief rabbinate. Um, so, they, so there are 27 of us in our cohort, 23 uh, North American rabbis, including one from Canada, uh, and uh, it's, it's either three or four from Israel. I, I, don't know if we're tw I think we're 27, so I think there's three, there's three Israelis uh, through that program. So it's the first time we're doing that together because really if you're going to live out the values of pluralism, it means you have to have everybody at the table. They understood it was going to be difficult for the Israelis you know, to learn all of this all in English because um, it's high level you know, talking and thinking, you know, and most of us have a hard time doing that in another language. But also the perspective was going to be largely that of North American rabbis. What are the challenges we're facing? What are the challenges we're facing in North America? What is North American Jewry most concerned about? Because that's why we rabbis schlep to Israel twice a year, is because you better be talking about something Right, that's going to impact my ability to make a difference uh, in the Jewish world for the Jewish people and therefore the contributions the Jewish people can make to the bigger, hopefully better world. So I'm part of the Rabbinic Leadership Initiative. Hartman really feels like if you're going to impact what's happening with the Jewish people, you got to get the Jewish leaders in the room. So they decided to put together an intensive program of study it's a three-year commitment to go a month in July and then a week in the winter, which actually comes out to about 10 to 12 days when you add travel and everything else in January. So I just got back uh, from Hartman, from Israel. It's in Jerusalem, because if you're going to do something about pluralism, <laughs> be, be, at the, be in the belly of the beast. As it were, uh, so we are in Jerusalem. It's a three-year commitment. As I said, twice a year. Um, I am in what's called RLI seven. I am in the seventh cohort. So if it's three years for each cohort, right? They've been doing this for a while. Um, the program evolves, but they're also trying to keep the the basic framework of what every RLI cohort has learned um, in place but also adding things because things change and evolve and our thinking about it changes and evolves and the facts on the ground change and evolve. Um, so this is one component of what Hartman is doing. What I passed out to you in color is a way for you to just begin to understand because if you flip it over, there's more. This is a way for you to begin to understand the scope of what Hartman is doing. So when I talk about RLI, that is one tiny component of what Hartman's doing. 
and how they're engaged, how they're involved uh, in trying to lead a conversation about Judaism, pluralism, democracy, and the challenges facing the Jewish people in the 21st century. Hartman is in, is in a way a think tank. Um, what it wants to do is get the greatest minds and the most committed hearts and the most passionate you know, um, people committed to the Jewish enterprise together in different ways to be thinking about these problems. They're not, they're not asking us to solve them in the room. They're just, they're trying to educate some of us in ways that ha help us look at the issues a little differently. Um, and they're, they're also trying to give us a bigger expanse of exposure to what some of these ideas have looked like throughout Jewish history. A very reconstructionist approach. Um, there's a lot of reconstructionism at Hartman. A lot. Because they really do bring us Talmud texts. We do a lot of Talmud. Um, talking about things like nationalism, we're doing Talmud and Jewish mysticism studies of, of the Zohar. It's like, okay, whatever. So, um, so, so I, I felt it was a little bit of a fetch, but okay, whatever. So, um, so you can see the ways that it's engaged. Like in Israel, it's very much advocating for religious pluralism. It is very much advocating, Hartman is advocating for a Jewish and democratic Israel. Okay? They do not shy away from how messy that is and how scary the implications are on different sides of that. They do not shy away from any opinion being expressed at the table. We are not there really to, dis to discuss and explore political positions. That is not really what most of us are there to do. We're not so interested in that. We're interested more in what are the challenges given the political perspectives what are the challenges and what are what's some of the best thinking right now and what are some of our ideas and what are other leaders' ideas about how to begin reshaping the conversation in such a way that it might be more constructive, right? Okay, so I just wanted to give you a broad sense of how much Hartman is doing so that you know how small this is that there's 20, you know, seven of us. So RLI is in July... Uh, about 25 days. Within RLI, for 10 days, there's what's called RTS. The rabbinic... <laughs> I can't believe I forgot what it stands for. Rabbinic Torah study, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, sure. Okay. So <laughs> RTS is a 10-day program welcoming rabbis from everywhere. So there's about 250 rabbis in the machon, in the, in the study center, um, together for lectures for 10 days. So it pretty much follows whether, you're, whether we're talking about the RLI program or the R and RLI and RTS are together for these 10 days. We're all learning the same stuff. We're all in the Beit Midrash together. Um, so w either way, the schedule's about the same. We are in our chairs at 9 o'clock, 8.30 to 9 o'clock, depending on the day. We are given instructions for about half an hour about what we're to do with the texts that we're given. We then break up into Chabruta. We break up into pairs of two or three, sometimes four if there's a straggler. They're not assigned. So for me, this was one of the worst parts of the program 
was you're in a room with all of these people and it's like, okay, go find somebody to study with. Some of us have a little bit of social anxiety. I know it's hard to believe. Um, some of us are a little shy. And it was like, uh, you're kidding me, right? You can't just sign it for the first week, really. So it's going, like, so it's... <laughs> It's crazy. So, um, so you find a chavruta partner, you find a chavruta group to study with, and for the next two hours, you study the texts in Aramaic or in Hebrew or um, in medieval Hebrew, in whatever they're written in. There are various levels of uh, competency in text study, so it, it produces a bit of anxiety. I personally, I hope they're not going to listen to the podcast, I personally believe some of it's on purpose that they don't help us. I mean, I do. I think some of it's to keep us a little off balance, to have us be a little unsettled, to have us like be aware of the fact that we're aware that my skills may not be as good as Judith's. Because um, I think they want us to kind of figure out how to cope so with that. Better than my Aramaic. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and the Aramaic you know, often doesn't have the vowels. So you're reading an unpointed Aramaic text out loud <laughs> in front of people you've never talked with before. All right, very fun, very fun. So, um, so, so I think there's, there's something kind of about that. Okay, so rabbis, why don't you look at, check, check, check your, how you doing? Right, check your ego, check what goes on. So it's very intense, two, so, so two hours is over, then the person who gave you the text, the lecturer, the faculty person, now does an hour and a half lecture. And then you either go to yourself, yes, we got that, <laughs> or we had no idea that's what this text was saying. Um, so you get an hour and a half lecture on those texts and what they're hoping you know, to have you take from them and how they link together and what's the through line and where do they disagree. Uh, and then after that, we have lunch at the Machon. They feed us there. Uh, and then we have an afternoon of study as well. So you know, different, different shiurim, different lessons. We break at about 4.30 or 5 for dinner. Uh, usually in there, there's a makom lanefesh. There's a time for spiritual expression that one of us leads. And uh, it's, they, on purpose, do not have us pray together. There are no services at Hartman together. They believe if you're really going to have a pluralistic environment, how are you going to put together a worship service there with Jews? Right? Because often what happens is the most conservative voice in the room wins. Because if there's not that, then they won't feel comfortable. If there's not a mechitza, if women are called to Torah, if women's voices, are, right, all this stuff starts to become, so how do you do that without having the most conservative voices in the room win all the time? Because they're not going to be comfortable in that service. Um, forget that the liberals won't be comfortable either, right? Uh, you know, so I think it was really wise that they said we're going to have one of us lead some kind of you know, afternoon, meaning around mincha, you know, some kind of nice experience and nobody says what that is you just get to do it um, and and that's it that's the only thing we do together on Shabbos everyone goes and finds a synagogue to pray at that's their flavor you know or experiment with someone else's flavor I don't know um, so, and so in, we learn all afternoon then we have a break for dinner you can either go home um, or eat there. They usually feed us. Um, and then we have an evening lecture starting at 7 or 7.30. We go till 9 or 9.30. Then we walk home because we each have to find a place to live for a month. We walk home and we 
collapse. Um, And this happens every single day except Friday afternoon. Sometimes we'll get out early. We have Shabbos morning off. We have Shabbos lunch together, a learning after Shabbos lunch, uh, and then some kind of evening, you know, Havdalah program, and we're back in our chairs Sunday morning. So one of the things I found that was challenging for me is like to take in that much information, 21 days of learning all day into the evening. There's no time between the evening lecture being over and the 8.30, you know, Chavruta study. There's nothing between there. There's no time to really take it in and have it die, like become you. It's all a bunch of papers and a notebook and your notes frantically on your computer. <laughs> and so I'm, it, when people say, like when I got back from the summer, people are like, well, how was it? What, what are you learning? And I was just like, ah. <laughs> I have no idea what I'm um, So what I've done is t- taken a few of the shiurim, a few of the lessons, um, and I'm gonna bring them to you uh, and just kind of give you what I got from them. This is mostly my teacher's words. Um, there's not a lot of my analysis here, um, but I'm happy to, to have a conversation about their teaching because that's kind of the point is to bring it back to you and have you chew on it. The same thing they're doing with us, they want me doing with you, right? They, they believe if we teach the rabbis, if we engage the rabbis, if we put this stuff in front of the rabbis and have them chew on it, they'll take it to their people. And during RTS this year, um, they said, just looking at who was in the room and where we come from and where we're situated, they were reaching about 125,000 Jews, given you know, who each of us has um, in our communities and in our congregations. So, that, so with you know, 10 days, they're reaching 100, over 100,000 Jews. And again, not to sway anybody towards anything, just to explore some of the ideas that Hartman cares about, which is pluralism, a Jewish and democratic Israel. And the, and the last one I'll say um, is um, there's a deep, deep, deep concern, both in this country and in Israel, that American Jews and Israeli Jews are doing this. That the Israeli Jewish community, the Israeli Jewish world and the American Jewish world, those societies are starting to really move on a trajectory away from one another. And I think it's one of the points Donnie L. Hartman is most passionate about when he tells us, I can just feel it you know, in him. You can just feel it. Um, and he says, we cannot, we cannot allow the Jewish people to walk away from each other on our watch. What the future will do, the future will do. We cannot allow the Jewish people to walk away from each other on our watch. And it's why we go to Israel. They fervently believe we, we got to be together if we're going to talk about what it means to be together. Um, and Hartman is aware that in the United States, Jews are starting to do this from each other. The figure that we learned was one, about 73% of non-Orthodox Jews are intermarrying. Or I think it may be even higher, actually. 90% of non-Orthodox Jews are intermarrying, which means the total number for Jews is something like 73% of intermarriage. All right, so I'm not saying that to be alarmist. I'm not saying that with any judgment on it, right? Um, So wait, but I want to give you another statistic right next to it. 77% of Americans are married to someone of their same political party. 
what does that say? What is assimilation now? Right? To Jews, of course, it means one thing. Of course, and it always will. I'm not trying to, to play that down. But it, what it's saying is, how are we choosing who's most like us? It ain't by religion anymore. And it ain't by ethnicity. It's by political ideology. And this is very much a reality. Yehuda Kurtzer gave us a fourth of era, Fourth of July lecture that was brilliant. I'm gonna, that's one of our shiurim. I'm gonna download to you what he said to us. This was the whole topic of his talk, was the Jewish problem on American soil. You know, it was gonna be solved, right, by the Enlightenment and Emancipation. The Jewish problem was gonna be solved. We were gonna be like everybody else. And a lot of folks, the answer was, well, if you have a country that's a Jewish state, well, well then we're, we have a state like everybody else. We'll have a country like everybody else. The Jewish problem will be solved by nationalism, by Zionism. Is Israel treated just like every other country in the world? Of course it is, right? <laughs> it's regarded the same as any other country, right? So that failed. Solving the Jewish problem only through political emancipation and Zionism failed. So then Yehuda Kurtzer gave this whole Fourth of July lecture on the Jewish problem on American soil in the 21st century. It, it was really uh, amazing. And one of these statistics was that 77% of us are married to people of the same political party and about the same percentage are married to people of a different faith. So the boundaries, one of the other things that Hartman talks a lot about is if we're talking about community, we have to talk about boundaries. The boundary now is really permeable to marry in or to marry out of the Jewish people. People want to marry us now, right? They also want us sitting on the board of the symphony now, right? Um, so so the, the boundaries to come into the Jewish people and the boundaries to marry out of the Jewish people and, and to not do anything Jewish, right, are, are really permeable right now. A lot of people get really hysterical about this. Hartman is not. It is not a place where people get hysterical about this. It's like, it's, it's what it is. What do we do with that, right? That's another question. Like, what, what does that mean? How do we hold that? What does it mean for our families? What does it mean for the Jewish community? What does it mean for the term Jewish? You know, what does it mean for Jewish peoplehood? Like, those are things they're very interested in. They are not interested in gushrying about the reality as it is. It, it doesn't help anybody. And it doesn't help you think creatively and in a positive way about how to impact the Jewish future. Um, so those are kind of the main you know, kind of the main areas that, that we've been studying uh, this past year. Um, I'm looking very forward to RTS because RTS has a topic. So we have our broad RLI curriculum. RTS has a topic to draw those rabbis right from all over the um, place, all over the world. And so, um, so they, and they want a topic, obviously, that's something that, that rabbis feel are relevant to the time. And so the topic for RTS this coming summer is truth. <laughs> George is laughing already, right? So truth. I, I think it's a, gr I mean, it's an amazing topic. And for sure, Torah and Tom would have a lot to say, you know, about that, that I feel won't even be a kvetch. Nationalism, 
I got to tell you, it was a fetch. But, um, and so I'm looking very forward to that because it's really true. That is, w- <laughs> um, that, that, is, that, is one of, that is one of the issues I find most distressing in my life right now is when I turn on the television and I'm like, that's not true! Oh my God, how can they? I get nuts. Why am I getting nuts, right? We're all getting nuts. nuts. And it's not anymore I disagree. That's different from that's not the truth. I saw the tape, (laughs) right? That's not what she said. So, um... I think what we live in an environment where our underground, our un, the underpinnings that let you know, okay, at least we're all dealing in the same reality. We can disagree, and that's unpleasant sometimes. Sometimes it's constructive. Sometimes it's scary. Sometimes I get mad. Like, whatever, that's fine. But when, you, when someone says your reality, no. You're actually not a brunette. You think you are. But that's because you're hysterical. You, so it's like then you get, it's crazy making, right? So, um, and so I think it's a really great topic for us to be studying. I'm eager to bring it back to you on the other side. You can be sure you'll hear it from the Bema at High Holidays. Um, all right, so a little bit of Hartman Torah. So that's a little bit about the program and about what we're up to and um, all of that. I'll just read for you the topics for year one for RLI. Identity, community, and politics. Jewish identity in the 21st century, theories of membership in a community, boundaries and belonging, living with diversity, colon, pluralism and tolerance, universalism and particularism, politicalism, Jewish peoplehood, Israel and world Jewry, uh, milestones and their meaning, Jewish values and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and Judaism and democracy. So some small topics. <laughs> that, we're, that we're addressing. All right, so I, I want to teach you a little Hartman Torah. All right, so when we talk about liberal, liberal democracies, and in this sense I'm not using politically liberal, I'm using the term liberal democracies, which has been in use for a really long time without a lot of s- stuff attached to it. What we're talking about in true liberalism is debate, pluralism, respect for different perspectives and that, that that is the kind of liberal society that functions well. Not that it's always happy, not that it's without its problems, not that it's not unpleasant at times, but that's, that's the aim of living in, a, in, in something we would call liberalism, that there's a, t- a high tolerance for debate and pluralism and holding that people can have different perspectives and it's true for them, right? That fill in the blank. Even if it's different from mine. Amy? Yes. In what language are the, the um, lectures? English. How many women are there? In RLI, for the first time, it is a majority women. Um, in RTS, I have no idea. There are just a bunch of people in the room. <laughs> is there a balance in different religious expressions? For example, there are Orthodox and there are... I, I, I don't know about the balance in RTS. I don't know. Um, in my cohort, there are five Orthodox, including one Hasidic uh, man um, and a bunch of conservative rabbis. Um, 
probably six or seven uh, reform rabbis. I'm the only reconstructionist rabbi. Um, several non-denominational, because um, several are not in congregations. They're really teaching, or one heads up klal. You know, so there's there's different um, different stuff. And all age groups represented too. Not all. Yes. Okay. Yes. All all age groups. RLI is probably skewed a little young. Am I telling the truth about that? I, I think it's skewed a little. It, it, it's younger than me, but not young, young. People at the very beginning of their careers don't take this kind of, <laughs> of commitment. They're just too busy doing other stuff. So um, not, I, I'm on the older end, but there are a few older than me. Um, so it skews a little, a little younger. So, all right. What is the goal? What is the project of liberal Judaism? This is one of the one of the conversations we were having. And some of the answers, like, and I was thinking about KI, like, what, what is the goal of liberal Judaism? Like, if I had to answer that, like, what, what would my answer be? I would love for you all to think about what your answer would be to that question. What is the goal, what is the project of liberal Judaism? So some of the stuff that we talked about was creating lives of greater depth and meaning with liberal Judaism, Judaism as the technology. Serving the universal good through the particularity of the liberal Jewish lived experience. So these are kind of the under, you know, like what, what are we really trying to do? Hartman is really all about trying to get us to articulate. What are we trying to do here? Because if you're just doing, that's fine. You know, but if you don't know what you're trying to do, how do you, how do you judge whether or not you're successful? You're successful? All right. But so serving the universal good through the particularity of the liberal Jewish lived experience, enriching the global conversation by sharing the perspective of the Jewish people as expressed through the liberal Jewish experience, and saving Judaism by forcing it to have a deep encounter with the other. It thus serves humanity by being responsible for the other through ourselves and learning from other wisdom without losing our own unique wisdom. So rather than hiding somewhere, only doing Jewish and studying Jewish, right? the project of liberal Judaism is to save Judaism, and I would argue as a good reconstructionist, as it has always been saved, by evolving in response to a deep confrontation with the other. Right? Maimonides is Maimonides because he was a Neoplatonist. And you Aristotelian, right? Like he, Aristotle and Plato are directly responsible for the thinking of Maimonides, right? And so whoever you want to pick as your classical Jewish source, guess what, right? It was only in deep confrontation and meeting deeply the other that Rambam becomes one of the greatest sages, right, of, of the Jewish people, creating a Judaism that spoke to the unique challenges of his community and his time. And so one of the slogans that, that we left with was, don't prepare for the future, invent it. And this is something I'm really hoping that I get changed by at Hartman, is we talk a lot about preparing for the future here at KI, at the leadership level, right? Here are the challenges. Here's what we see. Here are the trends. Here's what's coming. Here's what you need to know. Here's what we've learned. Here's the Pew study data. Here's what it means. Here's someone who says, no, that's not what it means, right? 
um, we're preparing for the future, and we're supposed to. That's a good thing. But I would like personally, in my role as rabbi, as my role as a leader of the, in the Jewish community, is to get to a place of invent, feeling like we're inventing the future, not just preparing for it. Nelson Mandela said it was impossible until we did it. And I don't even know what, what, what's, what's impossible. Like, fill in the blank. I don't even know what it is, right? Like, anyway, so, like, um, so I'm very clear that that's one of my goals is to, is to it, with my time at Hartman, to come out feeling like, okay, we're inventing the Jewish future, not just preparing for it. Um, are we brave enough, was one of the questions, to invent the Jewish future? And what are the ways that each of us as a community needs to be about thinking about how we're helping to create that Jewish Amy, future? Mm -hmm. Isn't that the essence of Reconstructionist Judaism? Yes, that it is. Thinking, <laughs> Orthodox, they're interpreting, but they're following conservative and reform. I mean, I'm on the board of, of the National Movement, and we talk about, and this is Deborah Waxman, our leader, and my gosh, we're trying to move it to where it needs to get. I'm not sure invent, I think modify, mold, but we're, we're sort of changing our religion. I think the only reason invent is because is it's, it's just over and against prepare. Like prepare because it's kind of inevitable yeah. what's coming. Invent says, no it isn't. You, you can decide what Reconstructionist Judaism is in the next five years, yeah. right? If we're serious about it. Absolutely. We are the Jewish thinkers who will articulate the goals and the project purpose of liberal Judaism. Mm -hmm. We are. If you think about that for a second, it's like, whoa, <laughs> like, right? Whoa, what? Like, really? <laughs> okay. Um, all right. So let's look at Exodus 32. It's in front of you. Again, another piece of Hartman Torah that Daniel taught us. Moshe, Lech, Red, Kishichet Amcha, Asher Ha'elita Me'eretz Mitzrayim. Moshe's talking with God on the mountain, and God says to Moses, Lech, go, Red, down. Like it's an order. Lech, go, Red, down, get down. Because the people that you brought up from the land of Egypt have messed up, right? All right, so now we're gonna get uh, a piece from the Talmud. I won't, I won't, I'll read just the beginning in Hebrew. By Deber, Daniel, Moshele, Mor, Lech, Red. Okay, so the rabbis are taking this chunk from the verse. Um, God says to Moshe, go, get down. My Lech, Red, what is this lech red? Amar Rabbi Elazar says Rabbi Elazar, Amar lo Hakadosh Baruch Hu Moshe. The Holy Blessed One says to Moshe, Red migdulatecha, get down from your greatness. Klum natati lecha, gedula ela bishvil Yisrael. I didn't give you nothing, nothing. Klum, nothing did I give you in terms of greatness, other than on behalf of the people Israel, right? So you'll see that on, on the back of your thing. 
Now, there's no need for you. Why is there no need for Moshe? Right? Moshe, immediately his strength went away and he couldn't speak. And God says to Moshe, leave me that I may destroy them. And Moses says, right, this is dependent on me. Moshe stood and was strengthened in prayer and asked that God have mercy on the nation of Israel. So what is God saying? Get, get down. Your people have messed up. You're, you're nothing in terms of being the great prophet, the great leader. You're nothing. The only reason you're anything, the gadula I gave you was on behalf of the people of Israel. And now they've messed up. They have, they have destroyed the deal. So what do I need you for? Right? Like, so what are the rabbis doing here? The rabbis are making it very clear. And Doniel Hartman like, lifts this up to say there is no notion in Judaism of a Torah, of wisdom, of ethics, of anything about Jewish anything without the Jewish people. Right? It's not like the, the word exists somewhere all by itself and is a thing all by itself. There is no Torah without the Jewish people. There's no Moshe without the Jewish people. It's all for and because of the Jewish people. And so Daniel, I quoted, I wrote down what he said, that this text makes it clear that our sages have no notion of a Torah without the Jewish people. And my question that I wrote under it was, well, what does this mean to us as a liberal Jewish community? And how do we respond to that responsibility? Right? T Torah doesn't exist without us. Jewish tradition, Jewish anything, doesn't, I mean, it'll exist in a dusty, yeah, something on the shelf. But the point of it, right, is to, is to be for us and, and we're to, you know, to, to use it to, to do us differently in this world. And Doniel says, okay, look, we can't love every one of the 14 million Jews on the planet. But one, one thing else that this text infers is, like it or not, we were all at Sinai. So whether you like who you're sitting next to right now or not, they were at Sinai too. And we are the Jewish people. And that means, in Doniel's language, more Hartman Torah, that means we are encumbered by one another. And Doniel says, I choose a life of encumbered, being encumbered. I choose a life of encumbrance. Because you could choose a life saying, <laughs> you know what, mm -mm, not for me. I'm out. I'm done. These people make me nuts. Right? I opt out. And Doniel says, you know, <laughs> That's not the life that he wants to live. If you recognize that you belong to the Jewish people, then it means you are encumbered by 14 million other people. That means it's going to get really uncomfortable to sit around the table. Really uncomfortable. I came to the orientation in New York. We had an orientation weekend for the first time they've ever done this for RLI. And I went to the... Um, orientation and I walk in and I'm like be bopping around like whatever it's like I'm in New York I'm doing this cool thing and I have to get into the next room because that's where we're gathering and standing in the doorway is somebody in a black coat and a black hat and pay us what does that mean I grew up in, an, in a traditional environment I know I can't touch him 
So that means it's on me now to make sure he gets out of the doorway so I can walk through. Like anybody else, you would just kind of do this or you'd say, excuse me, and maybe put your hand on there. But it's just the normal ways we would move someone out of our space respectfully and gently. But, and I was like, seriously? Seriously right now? In my program? This is my program. He's in my doorway. And I now have to get all into making sure I don't, you know, do this or I don't do that or I don't offend and I don't whatever. And now I have to check all of this stuff because he's here. What is he doing here? (laughs) This is my lesson, my cohort. Mine, 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 which is, right, don't we talk about this in meditation a lot? Mine. My house, my dog, my car, my people. Um, And so, like, that was so there. And so we sit down, and I'm still like, I can't believe it. In my cohort. So how did you get through the door? So (laughs) eventually I get through. So we're sitting around the table. And it's time for us to share about how each of us got here, where each of us is from, why we're here. And I thought, yeah, I'd love to hear that. (laughs) Why some of us are here. And so we all speak. And then he says, so I am here from Congregation CBST in New York. For those of you who don't know, Congregation CBST is the largest gay synagogue in the nation. My ex-wife came out as a lesbian. I have a trans daughter, trans uh, daughter, and um, I'm working at the juncture, at the intersection between the Haredi ultra-Orthodox community and the LGBTQ plus world. And I was like, that's so great you're here. And it was immediately the first lesson, right, about pluralism, right, and the ways, it's a lovely idea, but, it, but it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. Okay. It's also a lesson about truth that you can... It's a lesson about truth. It's a lesson about humility. Yeah. It's a lesson about non-judgment. It's, right? it's, so, so believe me, there, there's a high holiday sermon there also. Um, his name is Mike. He's quite famous now, quite famous, um, because people, we, he gets stopped in the street in Jerusalem by people who say, can I talk to you? They know who he is, and they have somebody in their family who's queer or trans or gay or they are how old a man is he uh 40 something is this the man you mentioned and so he um rabbi mike moskowitz so he's very famous look him up he's he's incredible he's amazing one of my favorite people in the cohort frankly (laughs) some of the reformed jews not so nice I'm not one of the popular girls in the cohort. <laughs> the popular girls sit together. So, um, so I, I, I'm not kidding even. So I brought, it's so like high school. So, and just like high school, I'm hanging out with Mike. Right? <laughs> like, and so Mike and I uh, were studying a text together. Um, 
We were studying a commentary by the Arizal. And the commentary by the Arizal, this famous commentator, was talking about the first commandment being pru or vu, be fruitful and multiply. And um, so I'm sitting with a Haredi Jew talking about pru or vu. And what the, the Arizal is commenting on this story in the Talmud um, that this one rabbi preferred Torah to anything and so didn't marry and didn't have children. And, and it's a comment on, is that okay, essentially? The first commandment is pru or vu, hello. Like, and it's on men, it's not on women. Pru or vu is a commandment on men because it's given to Adam. And so um, in, the, in the Haredi world, that, in, the ortho, in the traditional world, that, you, that's a horrible thing if you refrain from, from having children. And so I said to Mike, I said, you know, it's always made me a little sad that I, it used to make me a little sad that I was only gonna have one child. For lots of reasons, how long a rabbinic education takes, getting your first job, trying to get oriented, then you're gonna, when you start trying to get pregnant, when you, when you, how do you do that when you're trying to be rabbi of a congregation? We're not home a lot, so even if you had a bunch of kids, how would you be there for them? You can't schlep them, you can't help them with their homework, like, because we have a big fam, you know, like, it's like, we're, we're reporting to a lot of people and we give to a lot of people. And I said, I've, I, I kind of understand and relate to this to this commentary and, this, and the struggle with it. And he says to me, oh, actually, so we, were, we were just ta- studying the sugya and the critique of this approach. And he brought to me, sorry, the commentary of the Arizal, who says, on that commandment to be fruitful and multiply, this is Mike talking to me, the Arizal says there are actual children that we bring into the world and spiritual children that we bring into the world. And this rabbi was suggesting in the Talmud, he says that, you know, that there's other ways to be fruitful and productive in the world uh, and that some people c- can do, most people can do the one and not a lot of people can really do the other extraordinarily well. And he said there's work in this world, there's spiritual children that you have that nobody else could have reared, that nobody else could have brought up, that nobody else could have brought to Judaism. And so when you count your children, Rabbi Bernstein, I hope that you will count among them. And, and like the tears just started. And it's like we have forgotten that real truth and real rahmanus and real compassion and real learning often happens sitting directly in the face of the other the other about whom we make so many judgments. Just by what their voter registration card says. Just by the clothes they're wearing. Just by fill in the blank who they're sitting with, right? All the judgments that we leap to, all the ways that we make someone not a person, we make them a set of ideas, values that we are sure are antithetical to our own. So one of the things I most value about Hartman already is that we're sitting with real difference. Um, I trust over three years we'll talk about it more. We don't talk about it very much right now. We just accept that it is. Um, You know, people will start a statement with, um, I get it that a lot of people in the room will disagree with me about this, right? And we just kind of leave it there. You know, somebody doesn't say, well, yes, I do actually, because it's mostly interaction with our faculty. But that's already something that I'm so keenly aware I'm taking from this experience of being encumbered by Mike Moskowitz. 
Mm -mm. Which is why I'm not sure it's going to be a high holiday sermon. Because I just don't know. You know, like, I don't want him to feel, you know what I mean? I don't want him to feel, you know. Of course he knows that I would have had some assumptions as a lesbian coming from a traditional, that I would have had my baggage. I don't think he knows how deep my baggage (laughs) runs. But what if he was not what you found him to be? I would have. What if he was who you, I mean, would you assumed him to be? Well, if he had been what you thought he was at the beginning? Well, I think the the fact that he was at the table already said something about who he was. But I, but I would have needed a whole lot more proof. <laughs> the fact that he was in the doors. <laughs> that said a lot of things to me. All right. So Doniel Hartman, when he talks about peoplehood and its challenges, the Jewish people, and what, is, what are some of the challenges of peoplehood? Because Reconstructionism is great about talking about what is the most important thing. It's not behaving. It's not believing. It's belonging. Belonging to the Jewish people. Jewish peoplehood is the only constant throughout Jewish history, the only one. Not theology, not practice, not doing. Doing has changed. Even within whatever you want to call the most traditional communities, it's changed. How do you kosher a microwave? Show me that in Talmud, right? Like, so everybody's had to adapt and change, of course. So, um, so, so we, we talk about Jewish peoplehood, but at Hartman, of course, we're going to tear that open and say, all right, our, so Jewish peoplehood, lovely. Daniel Hartman says Judaism does not unite us. Judaism, in fact, divides us. Right? That it is impossible to identify a single feature of Judaism that all Jews will accept. <laughs> Name one, right? That all Jews will go, that's it, right? Yes, we all agree on that. There is one that we don't agree on anything. He says <laughs> Jewish peoplehood is a mystery. And he asks the question, is it even coherent, this idea of Jewish people? And so he thinks, of course, that we need to be thinking about Jewish peoplehood. And how do we think about that category if there's nothing really we can point to that we share? How do you then identify what it means, right, this project of the category of Jewish peoplehood? Is it easier, he asked us, to ask the question the other way, not who we are as the Jewish people, but who we're not, right? That sometimes, you know, that, that's the easier way to get at some of the, the understanding of, of who we are. He, he rejects big time, rejects the idea that anti-Semitism is a great way to organize who we are. <laughs> He's, he's adamant about rejecting that. He called it pathetic. He said, if that's, if that's what binds us together as a people, that is pathetic. And he's right. If there isn't something we are about rather than them, theming us, otherizing us, really? Really? Right. So when we talk about belonging to a people, when we, talk, we have to start talking about boundaries, right? That there, any community has boundaries. Every community, every society has its understanding of boundaries. Um, Boundary crossing is becoming, as I said before, easier crossing into the Jewish people and crossing out of the Jewish people. It's not a hard and fast boundary anymore. 
But anytime you talk about pluralism, you're gonna have to have a fairly sophisticated conversation about boundaries. All right. Because if it's something we really care about, he said to us, even liberal people come up with extreme boundaries. So think about Israel. That's all I have to say. All right. Think about the topic of Israel right, in Jewish communities. No matter how liberal the community is, there's going to be like the hard line. That now you're out. <laughs> this is in, and that's definitely out. We create, we have to, I mean, it's just who we are as human beings. We create um, societies, we create communities, and we create boundaries. All right. So when you are talking about communities, when you're talking about boundaries, so we, we hinted at it a little while ago, that the, the easiest way to be together is what we call pluralism, Right? That's, that's really easy when we talk about pluralism. There's four categories for Doniel. One is pluralism. What happens in pluralism? I look at it this way, you look at it that way, but I value, and they're different, but the, I value the way you look at it as much as the way I look at it. I might get to, to a deep meditative state and prefer and believe that it's the best way to get there is through silence. Jonna and the guy sitting next to her might believe that it's about sound and a lot of times, right? The vibration of sound and how that takes us to a different place. Okay, I can say silence is great or chanting is great, but also the sounds of the Tibetan bowls and taking a sound bath is also a really great way. It's just not my groove. It's not my thing, all right? So pluralism, that's easy. Because pluralism says, I value the way you see it as much as I value the way I see it, we just see it differently. So that's easy. Um, and that we, we tend to have kind of this fantasy that we live a lot in pluralism. Right? That's kind of our fantasy, that we live in a, a society that, that is pluralistic. Um, so the differences that we have in pluralism are of equal value okay that's pretty straightforward alright the next category is tolerance alright so what happens in tolerance any guesses we're not in pluralism anymore. You're wrong, but I put up with you. Yes. <laughs> right? So tolerance is... The t tolerance is we see it differently, and I don't value the way you see it as much as the way I see it. It is not an equal value relationship, but I... But for the sake of our community, for the sake of the bigger project, for the sake of whatever, I tolerate the f and, and believe you ha really have the right <coughs> to be wrong. <laughs> I'm in that group. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you're so self-aware, Michael. I'm in that group. I'm so self-aware. It's, the other perspective is not equal in value to yours. But
for lots of wonderful and amazing reasons, um, we tolerate it. All right. So, um, so under the category of tolerance, why do we tolerate something we think is wrong? One, it is only a society that is capable of tolerating difference that is capable of improvement. Because one generation might think something is crazy and wrong, but if you stay tolerant, then it, it might, it, it helps you as a society or a community improve because you might get to a place where, oh, you know what? Maybe, you know, we shouldn't throw gays from the tops of buildings, right? Like, maybe it's not so horrible, right? So maybe, maybe women can fill in the, you know, do whatever, right? So, um, so tolerance allows a community to have the room to uh, improve because things could change, right? You keep all options in the room and all options out on the table. Um, this is very rabbinic, right? Look at the Talmud, right? The, they appreciate keeping all options on the table because you never know how the circumstances might change and what looks crazy today and, and like, what? That's so wrong, isn't if you keep it on the table. And, um, and, and again, the, the value of a collective sense of membership um, because we share a country, we share a city, we share whatever, right? That there's a positive value to keeping people at the table, to keeping people included. And that requires tolerance when the people sitting across from you are wrong, right? All right. Um, so then there comes a time where you think there's a difference that's going on that you cannot tolerate, that it's not, it's not okay, like that it's not equal in value, but it's okay that you do that, right? You know, it, that's, that's tolerance. So then there's the third category of deviance. You may be wrong, but okay, whatever. I can live with, you know, it's like, okay, you're entitled to be wrong. It doesn't really bother me that much. Deviance is now broken into two categories. Tolerable deviance <laughs> and intolerable deviance. All right? Can you all see the bottom, those of you sitting over there? Okay. All right. So tolerance means I can tolerate the position. An example is I'm a vegetarian and you eat meat. I might think it's wrong to eat meat as a vegetarian. I think it's terrible for you. I think it's unethical. I think it's destroying the planet. What, I'm, try, I'm trying to think like a vegetarian for a minute. Um, but I can sit at the table with you. Right? I mean, I, I know some vegetarians can't, but for the most part, this, this analogy works, right? In deviance, it's not something that I can be so comfortable sitting at the table with you about. So, tolerable deviance might be you eat horse meat. Like, I think that's disgusting. I think it's wrong. I don't think it should happen. I don't think it's okay that it happens. But, okay. Like, I'm going to. I have to kind of put up with this. Intolerable deviance, any guesses? Yeah. 
Huh? Yes, you eat humans. You eat humans. All right, what's the difference? So all, all three to hear, all three say, I disagree. What's the difference when we get to, to intolerable deviance? You say it's wrong. No, I said it was wrong here. And I won't, no, I won't deal with it. I won't be with it. What does that mean? No, it's not that I won't. What, take another step. What does it mean? We have to separate them. Yes. So this means separation. This means it's now the person. Now you are intolerable to me. If someone eats horse, I might think that's disgusting. If you eat human flesh, it's now something about you. Now it's you, not just your behavior I can't stand. Now it's fundamentally about who you are. And if that's the case, something has to be done about it. That person has to be, right? Somehow there's a consequence about, you know, that has to happen if that behavior goes on. So the other one we got was tolerable deviance is driving 85 miles per hour. There are consequences. You get a ticket. You're fined a lot of money. Right? You're given a warning. You're about to be in some big trouble, dude. But intolerable deviance, right, is that you're driving 125 miles per hour drunk. Now what happens? In a school zone. Now what happens? Now they take your license away. Because now they're saying you're no longer a driver. It's intolerably deviant, and now it's about you, not just about the behavior. We'll give you a ticket, we'll give you a fine, that's about the behavior. Once you get to intolerable deviance, now it's about you. You don't get to be a driver anymore. You're the problem. All right. Whoever deems someone intolerably deviant definitely understands that there is a threat that is so potentially destructive that something has to be done. Yes. It, they may not have been destructive yet. Like you might have been driving 125 miles an hour drunk, but you didn't hit anybody. But your behavior has put you in a category that now says you, Sarah, can't be a driver anymore. We are taking you off the road. Because you might, based on your behavior, you might, in our estimation, be really close to hurting somebody. So yes, I think the, the threat of something so destructive that it's terrifying definitely informs who we put in the category of intolerably deviant. So would this be like in, for some people, but I think in past times when a Jew would marry out of Judaism and the family would... Correct. At one point in our history, marrying outside of the Jewish people would have put you immediately into the category for a lot of your family into intolerable deviance. You, they sat cottage for you. <laughs> Think of Tevya. They, they sat cottage for you. But some people in your family might have been moved to consider it deviance, but t- 
tolerable deviance because they love you. Do you see the difference? The critical difference is I don't love you anymore because you are intolerably deviant. This I cannot accept, Meaning I, it's so bad I can't accept you. But many people are moved by that or by someone in their family coming out or by someone marrying into a, you know, a different race or whatever are moved from what they thought was a category of intolerable deviance to now it bumps up to tolerable deviance because I don't want to have to enforce the action that would have to happen if you are the issue. Mm-hmm. In New York City, uh, Bill de Blasio was cracking down on the um, uh, Hasid and their schools because it's intolerable to him that they're not learning basics, ABCs, and things like that. They're not learning anything. They're learning how to read, how to read uh, Torah. And he says, we have to crack down because that's intolerable. Okay. As, a member of, as a member of the larger society, nothing to do with being Jewish or not, uh-huh. but it's intolerable. All right, so, but then we have to think about, okay, who agrees with him? Because the other issue with the category of deviance is, or all of these categories, actually, who has the power to claim the category? He might see it as intolerable deviance. Unless enough people vote with him, it won't be considered intolerably deviant, and that school will continue. That's true. So, so part of the issue is who has the power to decide who is deviant, who is tolerably deviant, and who is intolerably deviant. That is a big component of all of these things when we talk about boundaries and we talk about these categories. It's also about power. Who has the authority to enforce the categories? Would you put anti-Semitism in the category of deviance? According to what? No, I'm asking. No, I don't know what you're asking. To and clarify anti- the question. Anti-Semitism. If someone is anti-Semitic. If someone is anti-Semitic. Would it fall into those? I'd need more information. If you're asking me as a person, I'd need more information. Are they ready to take a gun into a synagogue? That's intolerably deviant. If they hate Jews, I can tolerate that. You can hate me all you want. What do I care? It would matter to me, like, where, what are the things associated with them being an anti-Semite, right? Um, I know anti-Semites that... Like, okay, like, what, what, you're, you're entitled to your opinion. Like, what, you know, I'm a traitor to the Jews because I vote for, okay, okay great. You're gonna, are you calling me a traitor to the Jews? Like, I care. What did you think about my traitor to the Jews? Um, so I can tolerate a lot of that. I'm, I'm not at pluralism with anti-Semitism, right? I do not appreciate it in any way as an alternative way of looking at things that's equally valued to mine. Um, I think it's not equal to mine as a worldview, but it's a free country. You're entitled to think and even say to some extent what you want. Deviance becomes yelling fire in a, in a crowded theater, right? And hate speech, that, that, that's kind of often where we're trying to, to negotiate the difference. When is it tolerable? Because it's free speech. It makes us uncomfortable. We don't like it, but it's still free speech. And when is it, when is it now deviance? to the place where it's either tolerably deviant or intolerably deviant. So these categories are at work and at play all the time um, in, in every human society. Just once again, Jana, you wanted to say something? No, I was just 
It was answered. George. It's all conditional also. Uh, for example, uh, the homeless uh, in psychiatric definition that, uh, well, they, for example, a danger to self or others and unable to take care of oneself from mental illness. Danger of self to others. People argue whether the word imminent should be in there. Right, imminent danger. And the, the difference is, what resources do you have? If you throw imminent in there, you don't need as many resources. You don't need as many hospital beds. Same thing with uh, unable to take care of yourself. You see a homeless person who's eating, right? He got the sandwich out of the rubbish, but he's eating. He can take care of himself. And the definition that is used depends a great deal on resources. So all of these are conditional. One could make even uh, eating humans. There are people who, uh, you know, this one's dead and this one's alive and there's no food. It's conditional. It still may be wrong in one sense, but there are many conditions to modify all of those. Always. Yes. And they are constantly changing. Yes. So yes. part, this is why I go back to some of it's about who has the power to say, I don't care that y'all's minds have changed. It's like, uh-uh, not going to happen. That school's being shut down. No more funding. Forget about it. Right? So part of it is power to make those decisions. Um, and part of it is that they are constantly shifting and constantly changing. And one of the things that Hartman is hoping, I think, to cultivate in us and in y'all, because they are hoping we bring it back to you, is can we at least... Can we at least put them out there? He's not saying this is the only way to think about things, but it's a helpful thing to look, to look at where we're putting people, ideas, behaviors, when we react to them as different from what we want. And to be, so, so the point, and, and kind of the chiddish for me, the, the really important point, is he says, you cannot move a significant portion of your population, and he's talking like 20%. You cannot put 20% of your population into the intolerably deviant category and remain a healthy society for very long. And as that number, as that percentage grows, social cohesion starts to fray and to pull apart. And what happens when social cohesion comes apart to a point that people become, a huge swath of your society becomes intolerably deviant? Nazi Germany. So, because A, you lose, you lose tolerance. So you lose, you lose, um, what did he say? How do we prevent the movement of so many people into the intolerably deviant category so that these categories and so that our society can breathe? Tolerance, I may not like what I'm breathing in all the time on an airplane, but I can breathe. And it, and it allows some expansion and contraction, and, right? and, it, and the system stays dynamic. I'm not even talking about pluralism. That's like a that's nirvana. All right, that we halify, we should get there. But I'm too too much somebody who believes we should be intolerant of something. Um, but but to, if we if we if we could get closer to tolerance more of the time, society's more robust. 
more things stay on the table. We can argue about them, we can talk about them, we can disagree about them, but they're on the table and I might go home and go, you know, Bert actually had a really good point. <laughs> well, let's just imagine for a moment I could go home and say that. So, so it, and this has happened to all of us, right? Where you're in a meeting and you're and you're taking your position and you're and then you get home and you're like, you know, <laughs> she had a really, really important point. I never really thought about it from that perspective. I, I haven't had that experience, so I never really thought about that. So if those ideas are on the table, if those voices are, are at least welcome to speak and feel at least safe enough to say it, that's tolerance. And then a lot more stuff stays out there as a possibility for, for how it affects and impacts every part of the system. Deviance, okay. He actually says pluralism, tolerant, deviance to hear. Toler- everything through tolerable deviance, nobody really knows what you think anyway. Right, like whatever I say, as, as long as it's not in the category of intolerably deviant, it doesn't really matter if Sue thinks it's just as good as her idea, or if she thinks I'm an idiot, but I have a right to say it anyway. Or does she say, you know what, that, that's just actually, it's disgusting. But whatever, you know, Amy has a right to be disgusting. You know, so that, that till here, it really doesn't matter all that much in terms of the functioning of society. It's, I would say that Donnell might argue it's healthier the more that's here on the tolerance l- level. Um, it's certainly more resilient. It's if something happens, you, can, you have more options to respond, right? More ways of thinking about it. Um, but in t- we have moved so many people into the category of intolerably deviant now that people are reading a post. I'm not telling you something you don't know. Just new language for it. Someone's reading a post by their friend of 37 years and they unfriend them. I'm hearing it all the time. Rabbi, I'm so upset. Tell me what happened. Somebody I've been really, you know, not so close with, but in contact with. Our kids grew up together. I love their kids. You know, they, you know, they have friends who've married each other. And I read something they posted, and, and I had to unfriend them. And they're coming into town next week. <laughs> that's, a, that's a Jewish family. Um, they were staying with me, right? So, um, and, they ha- and I got them a reservation at an Airbnb down the road. So, um, and they're coming into town next week, and I can't do it. I can't go to lunch, and I don't know what to do. I'm so heartbroken. And it's because now it's not just what the person wrote or what they think. The category of intolerable deviance means now it's you as a person that's the problem and that is no longer tolerable. I can't even be in your presence and I can't sit at the same table with you. And I'm not, I'm not making an argument here that there aren't things that, move, that should move people into the category of intolerable deviance. I'm not. There's lots of people I, I don't want to sit at a table with. Um, but the more people were, re- the, m- the bigger percentage of people that are ready to put a bigger percentage of people in that category, we are facing a serious, serious social crisis. Right. Rabbi Amy, where does respect come in here? Because we're, we're, 
the language we're using is I value your view or I disagree with your view, but if, if we have a, an added concept of we should be respecting each other's views, I mean, I guess that falls away under I think a lot of a lot of the line really is here, because I, certainly this is about respect. This is too. I can your different views different, but but I respect that you're entitled to hold a different view, and even with tolerable deviance, it's like, ugh, you know. But whatever, um, because I respect you, I can respect that you ha you hold a position that I really, really have some issues with, right? But you're part of my community. Like I'm, you know, I'm encumbered by you because I respect our community. I respect you as part of it. Th this is where I think respect breaks down. So one of the things I think you're pointing to is one of the one of the um, when you're sick and and things happen because you're sick. What's it called? Symptom. Yeah, like, but worse than symptom. Like complications, you know, like one of, one of the serious complications to intolerable deviance is that I really, ultimately, and I don't respect you. And that's where we're at, right? So you could almost use it as a diagnostic tool. If there's no respect for the other person, we're dealing with intolerable deviance. Because even here, I can roll my eyes, but you know, I'm like, I, I respect your right still to hold that opinion. You're still part of this community. I might not respect your opinion, but I respect you. Um, here, I think, is where the breakdown happens. It seems to me that there might be a little bit of a tautology here, because deviance is deviance from what? The social norm. It turns out if you come from a society of cannibals, eating humans isn't it? No, for sure. This, this would all be different. All these examples would be different for a cannibalistic society. Yes. But 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 tr true for which community? So like I, all all Donnie is saying, I think is this is a way to talk about any community. All all of the examples would change based on on what the community is, when it is, where it is, what are the norms that inherit. Oh, and that's the other thing he says. None of this would be a real issue if you got to choose what the community was, right? Like we we would just all agree, and I think we had this conversation earlier. Um, but we inherit community, awesome. right? Like we, we're part of a community. Even if we join it, it's already a community. Like and, and so it's already got differences inherent within it. And as long as you've got that in any human society, you have these categories at play. Again, I'm not arguing that they're right or great. I'm saying, for me, it was an eye-opener about, whoa, the amount of intolerable deviance I'm hearing, or the amount of folks judging things as intolerably deviant has so escalated in the last several years that I, I mean, my eyes were, I was like, yes, yeah, that, that's what's happening. And it's starting to, I can, it's pulling at, right, at, at really long-term, what were strong associations. Again, they, there were people who never really probably agreed about politics, but you respected the person, so you had lunch with them when they were in town. You didn't talk religion or politics. Right? You know not to go near certain topics, but I respect you as a person. Now, they can't even have lunch with this person. That's a whole, because now, what does it mean? 
Now I can't even hear what you have to say that's different at all. So now I'm not even exposed to what you have to say because I turn it off and shut it out. Yeah. Which is why I appreciate the model um, and, and wanted to bring it to you is I think the more we can stay aware of kind of where we are in this in any given moment, in any given situation, in any given relationship, in any given whatever, I think it's very helpful to stop some of the reactivity um, and to, and like, of course, using all good psychological and spiritual and emotional, you know, tools, of course. This one was a huge help for me in going right this is a serious crisis um, that's happening mm-hmm. you said at the beginning there were four and I can't think of anything worse than a tolerable sorry one two one two three four okay sorry <laughs> yeah, dead now you know like, number four I don't know possibly like projection could play a role in the Intolerable. Right, because now I'm not, because I'm not even just listening to what the ideas are. Now I'm projecting now that you are a blank person. Exactly. That's, that's a lot of what's happening. It's a lot of what's happening. I have posted frequently on Facebook a distinction between the person and the conduct. You know, I dislike the conduct, but I am. I view that as tolerable deviance, but when, when I look at a person who is engaging in conduct that I can't condone, it falls right down to an intolerance. Uh, but, I, but I try to avoid labeling everything that person does as intolerable because I can hold my nose and, 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 and sometimes get to the tolerance level, although much of it I think is Right, so I hear what you're doing a lot is, is really working at, at not dropping below the red line. Yeah. That you're, you're, you're really aware that there's a lot of stuff that's feeling like deviance, mm-hmm. and, a, a, and it feels really deviant, and you know, whatever. And you're working really hard to stay in tolerable deviance, which means I'm going to keep labeling it the behavior, the speech, the position you're taking the information you're exposing yourself to because you're obviously wrong. So like obviously you're reading the wrong information, but okay. And you're, so you're trying to keep it to that and not the person. And that's, and it's a fine line sometimes, but, but I hear you're working really hard, good for you, like to stay at the level of its behavior and worldview and whatever, not that you're a bad person. Not labeling the person. Right. Correct. Is there a total breakdown of communication and intolerable? I think one of the ways we once we label something or someone intolerably deviant, yes. I think one of the things it's like yeah. So you so you no longer right. You're removed from the equation. That I think is dangerous. 
It's very dangerous, but, but we're doing it passively all the time by, I won't listen to that station, I won't read that feed, I'm not gonna read an article from that perspective or that website. We, we don't realize it, but we're doing it all the time, sh- you know, saying I'm not even gonna hear it, I'm not even gonna listen. Hundred percent. It's intensified it to a degree because there are things I used to not know about you, or I kind of know because it happened once, and we said we're never talking about that again. So I know about it, but I don't have to be exposed to it over and over and over. So we can still have lunch. I still respect you, but there, right now, why are these people not having lunch? Nothing's changed about who they are. Now they're seeing each other's thoughts that they would never have said to each other at the table. Now they know way more and are exposed to way more about what that person actually thinks that's helping shove a lot of stuff down below that red line to intolerable deviance. And I, and I just want to say back up to one thing I was saying before, and I really do believe we are living in echo chambers and it's really scary and it's really terrible, but I do want to qualify it by saying there are times, and I could be deluding myself, that's completely possible. Um, there are times right now I don't listen to some things so that I don't move some people into the category of intolerably deviant. It's like, if you keep talking, (laughs) I have to turn it off. Because, in other words, there's times I think it can be helpful to not read the Facebook feed. Because then I can look at you as a person and go, okay, she may think whatever, but I'm just not going there. Um, and, And what's happened is I find myself getting so upset and so worked up that there's just, at this person, right? It's like, you don't know this person. So I have no respect on some level for them, but it's because I don't know them outside of the context of what they're saying. So I realize for me, I have to shut it down sometimes so that I can try to maintain respect for the person by not listening to what they're saying. Does, does that make sense? So I think it can work. I just want to be clear that, that I think it can work both ways. It's not an absolute. I think the intolerable um, differences work against the person feeling it. Intolerable deviance. If we yeah. feel that some something's intolerably we deviant. Are so passionately angry, upset, full of antipathy towards an individual, it works against us. It, it, yes, when we feel that. Yeah. We don't it's always have to feel that to put somebody in the category of intolerably deviant. If someone murders somebody in cold blood, I am perfectly fine putting them in the right there in the intolerably deviant category, put them away. Get them an education, okay. But um, I don't feel a whole lot of anger or antipathy necessarily when I read about that in the paper, unless it's somebody I know, and it happens, you know, they murder someone I love. I don't think intolerably deviant always comes with that level of activation and negativity. But yes, I think you're right. When it does, it's never really helpful for us, right, to, to be like wrapped up in that stuff. Marty, then Linda, and then is there another one? And, and, then we'll, and then we'll close. I sometimes adhere to the wisdom of football referees. 
when someone starts going on, I go this. And they say, what do you mean? I say, and I stop. And I stop them. I say, no. I've been at dinner, and people start, uh, start talking about politics, and I say, no. What do you mean? I mean, no. <laughs> right. Right. Me, believe? I opt out. Oh. Right. I, I, I'm not having this conversation because I know I know where this is going to go. It's going to drop below the red line. <laughs> another, another point that might escalate in tolerable deviance is that in these times, people are encouraged to say what they need and say what they're thinking. And many, a lot of these things probably ought not to be said. Not to be said out loud, right? Or at least in the company you're in, right? Like, like in the—I was going to say—it's the company, right? Like, because if you're in this environment, go ahead and say whatever you want, even if you're here. Like, okay, you you just need to be ready for to be challenged, or whatever. But, but right. But we're living in a climate where we have to start learning. I, you're 100 percent right. I think to start evaluating better, is this going to be productive? If I open my mouth right now, right? Or is it just kind of like, let's just, like, it, right? Sometimes it's just right. Because all it's going to do is start moving things in a direction that isn't good. I'm having trouble with the definition of value. Because if you look at the example of pluralism, we could say that, you know, let's take you know, racial diversity, you know, blacks and whites. I'm, I'm not sure that there's any intrinsic value in being white versus black. And intolerance, you know, sometimes we're, sometimes, you know, we are tolerant of people that belong to different groups that not necessarily have one group has more value than the other. As you go down that list, value becomes much more of an issue in terms of morality, in terms of ethics, in terms of behaviors that reflect your morality and ethics. But when you say pluralism implies equal value, I would argue that a lot of aspects of pluralism have nothing to do with value at all. Okay. Okay. Um, I'm not sure. I have to think about it. But I, I, I think it, it's about an orientation towards pl pluralism. I, I think it does suggest value. Sorry. I think it does suggest value. Like, that I value men and women equally, blacks and whites equally. That, that is about value. The, that's true pluralism. Tolerance is... Blacks aren't quite as good as whites, really. But it, but they but they have a right to be here too, and women, pff, forget about it, right? Over emotional histrionic, like really, you know, like that. But but <laughs> you're right, you agree. Um, so yeah, I, I know who you're married to. Sorry. Um, so and you still hold hands. So sorry. Um, but right. So I, I think there is something about it, maybe. I don't call it respect, regard, I, you know, but that you, you respect it equally, you regard it equally. That's true pluralism, which is why I think we don't hang out there very much. We don't really, we really aren't very pluralistic, I don't think. Um, I think it's much more about, it's not, as val it's not as good as mine. Whatever it is, my race, my gender, my religion, my whatever, but I can hang out in tolerance that it's okay. You don't need to be as good as me. <laughs> I think that's where the word value is. It's a, it's a, you respect and you regard, you hold as just as valuable as yours, whatever the, the theirs is, right? Um, and for me, it's easiest actually to express it around religious stuff. 
or spiritual stuff, right? Like it, it's so easy for me to, to, to get pluralism in that context, um, right? So thank you so much for your attention. You've been seriously focused for an hour and a half. I'm very proud and pleased. I'm going to give you one more thing before you go. Um, and this is this coming summer, as I said, RTS, Truth and Reconciliation is the topic. Um, Hartman has a lay program. So you too can come to Hartman this summer. <laughs> and I will see you there. <laughs> Um, so I do want you to know about it. Tell somebody you think might be interested about it in it. It's an exciting environment to be in. We have to read Aramaic? No, you absolutely do not. See you next time. <laughs>